Truth Espresso, episode 217. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso, to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. And now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. This is Truth Espresso with Daniel Minnick. Hey there, this is your host, Daniel Minnick, for another episode of Truth Espresso. And if you notice, the title of this episode is not Christmas is Pro-Life Part 2. There is a good justifiable reason for that. And if you could keep me and my family in your prayers, we've just been going through a very rough time recently with health, especially uh, some of our kids right now. Our whole family has just been ill for well over two weeks now, and as some of us have been getting over colds, some of our kids have just been getting some nasty bronchial stuff, and so that has just kind of put uh, recording on hold for a little bit. And so part two will come, uh, you know, whenever we can manage to put some notes and get some recording done without having to be taking care of some pretty sick kids here. And so for this episode, what I'd like to do is to bring to you a recording that I did that I found while digging through some old files. And by old files, I mean something that's almost 20 years old right now. So a devotional recording I did in 2003 called Guilty as Charged is kind of a script that I wrote to present a gospel message. And the setting is that of you, the listener, being on trial for murder and your defense attorney tries to plead the case that you should not be faced with the punishment due for murder because of the good deeds that you did. So basically, if you've heard people pitch the idea that to get to heaven, to be saved, is if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds then I argue from this hypothetical court case scenario just how much that wouldn't make sense. Because if someone performs good deeds, if a court is just, it's not simply going to outweigh the bad deed. Because if you're guilty as charged, you must face the punishment for your sin regardless of any good deeds you may have done. So that's the point of this message. And you'll get to listen to a young tyke <laughs> version of Daniel Minnick. I was a young pup of 23 at the time. And so, yeah, I, I sound kind of like your typical kind of evangelical flavor to this uh, recording here. And so, without further ado, enjoy my devotional recording in 2003 entitled Guilty as Charged. court is now in session. You have been charged with the manslaughter of your best friend. The attorneys of both the plaintiff and the defendant have given their sides of the case. Now, the prosecutor, having just interrogated two witnesses who saw the event with their own eyes, your attorney rises. 
The case is all but settled. You know you are guilty, and both witnesses have testified clearly that they know as well. Now, wiping off the disappointed countenance, your attorney stands and presents what appears to be a confident and compelling effort to change the outcome of this proceeding. Your Honor, he says with a smile, at the pinnacle of the proceedings of this case, I wish to present to you as well as to all that are in attendance a different perspective of my client. Although the evidence of his account of wrongdoing is overwhelming, I shall also inform all who are here of other deeds my client has performed, with your honor's permission. Permission granted. You may proceed, attorney. Thank you, your honor. Let me begin by restating the purpose of this court, and recalling what appears to be the action described of my client. According to the account, he was at his friend's house late on that Friday night. They were having a simple dispute over what seemed like a childish conflict. Then they started to quarrel and roughhouse. Being captivated in the adrenaline rush of the situation, and in a fit of rage over losing the fight, my client supposedly grabbed a nearby kitchen knife from the counter and stabbed his friend in the chest. Please be informed that whether my client did or did not take his friend's life, he is certainly not content with the event. The death of his friend is not in the best interest of my client, and I can personally attest that my client is very grieved with his passing. Now let us brace ourselves for what your honor may not know about my client's record. Whether or not he did commit murder bears no connection with these accounts in his record, which I shall now present to your honor. Just moments ago, we saw and heard the compelling testimony of two individuals who claim to bear witness of my client's act of murder. They have both given equal and detailed statement. However, let me direct your honor's attention to the fact that these witnesses number only two. The alternative account of my client that I shall present to your honor involves many more than two witnesses. These witnesses of this record involve literally hundreds of individuals who know very well or are at least acquainted with my client, and many of them are, in fact, right here in this court. May I call a witness to the stand, your honor? You may, attorney. Thank you, your honor. I now call Mr. John Doe to the stand. The witness then swears to tell the truth. Mr. Doe, how do you personally know my client? I am his next-door neighbor. Thank you. And have you witnessed my client's manslaughter? No, I have not, but I must say I was shocked to hear about it. So, Mr. Doe, besides this action presented before the court, can you tell me other deeds by my client that you are aware of? And the plaintiff's attorney shouts, Objection! Leading! Vague! Mr. Doe continues to answer. Well, for one, he has been very nice to my children. He has given them treats. He has also on many occasions taken my family out to eat and has paid for all of us. I also recall two years ago that when he gave $5,000 to the Save the Children Fund. Thank you, Mr. Doe. You may sit down. Your Honor, these are surely good deeds by my client, but there is more. May I call another witness? You may. Thank you, Your Honor. I now call Pastor Billy Bible to the stand. The witness then swears to tell the truth. Reverend Bible, how do you personally know my client? He is a deacon in my church and a very faithful attender. In fact, I even thought about nominating him as pastor before I pass away. Thank you. And have you witnessed my client's action before the court? No, I have not. It certainly contradicts my perspective of this man. 
So, Pastor Bible, can you tell me actions by my client by which he is known to you? And the plaintiff's attorney shouts, Objection! Leading! Vague! Pastor Bible continues to answer, uh, Except for days when he was very ill, he attended my church faithfully. He has been known to put more money in the offering plate than many of the rich folk who attend. Many a time that I have an invitation, he comes forward. Very generous man he is. Why, after a missionary to Guatemala spoke at our church, he gave him a check for $3,000, money that he had been saving for a vacation. He has come to all of the church's work days, and he has done long hours of volunteer work. If this man did not murder his friend, I would say that he is a very good man, if not the ideal man. Thank you, Reverend. You may return to your seat. Yet another example, Your Honor, of many gracious deeds by my client. We have seen two witnesses testify to one criminal act allegedly performed by my client. I have now presented two witnesses that have given equally clear testimony of personal experience with my client that can show not just one, but countless other works that have improved the lives of many others in this community. Yet these two do not remain the sole witnesses for my case. I will now direct Your Honor's attention to Exhibit C. If I may present this to Your Honor? You may. Thank you, Your Honor. This manila envelope, a collection of exactly 100 separate compositions from 100 distinct individuals. These compositions consist of various forms of gratitude, mainly thank you notes, get well letters that include thank yous, and other related expressions that will continue to testify to my client's benefit to this community. If your honor would like to examine the contents for authenticity, there are signatures on the bottom of most of these, and many of these individuals make their appearance in this courtroom today. If I may enlighten your honor by requesting that each of these individuals who have written one of the letters in Exhibit C stand for your honor's recognition. You may. Thank you, your honor. Would these select individuals please stand? Wow. More than half this court's attendance. A very provocative display of admiration indeed. Now in closing, Your Honor, I would like to stress the point of my case. I mention again that we have just heard the clear testimony of two individuals that claim that my client has committed manslaughter against his best friend. And frankly, the evidence is compelling. However, if Your Honor and all who are in attendance of this court may muse upon what I have just exhibited, this court may hesitate to enact upon my client the sentence that may be applicable to the alleged action without discretion. Two witnesses have testified to one single act of wrongdoing that my client may have committed. Hundreds, if not thousands, of individuals have attested to many separate acts of goodness that my client indisputably has committed. With great faith, I urge this court to check my client's record for any other trespass of the law for which my client is known. Given the overwhelming record of gracious deeds performed by my client, I would contend that whether or not my client is guilty as charged for the manslaughter of his best friend, my client is a proven and delectable asset to this community. I rest my case, Your Honor. After your attorney's stellar performance, your heart begins to skip beats as the honorable judge begins to make a statement. 
In light of this evidence, beautifully displayed by the attorney, I find that the attorney was willing to suggest and agree with the possibility that the defendant is guilty of manslaughter as charged. In all sincerity, I find the slick proceedings of the attorney ridiculous and immaterial. I would not question the record of the defendant for any one moment. I have no doubt as to the authenticity of the defendant's acts of goodwill. However, the purpose of this court is not to unveil to the public the many good deeds of the defendant. The purpose of the court is to decide if the defendant is guilty as charged and to enact the punishment proscribed by law. The fact that the defendant has committed many acts of goodness is absolutely irrelevant and moot. Due to the clear testimony of the witnesses to the crime and the attorney's immaterial case, I find the defendant guilty of manslaughter and the sentence is death. Given this crude example of a hypothetical criminal court case, you may be thinking, what kind of attorney would ever argue a case like that? That would never work in a court of law. You would be absolutely correct. That would never work in a court of law. In a trial, the record of your good works, no matter how grandiose, would never outweigh the record of your crimes, no matter how minuscule. Then why in this world would you ever think that that would work before a sovereign, holy God? For those of you who think you can make it to heaven by good works, no matter how sincere, are sincerely deceived. Your good works can never outweigh your bad works in a court of law, and your good works will never outweigh your bad works in God's court. You can never get to heaven by doing good works. How do I know this? Let's look at the Word of God and see what the Word of God says about how to get to heaven. Romans 3.10 begins, As it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way, they are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Verse 23 says, For all have sinned, and come short of the glory of God. You may believe that you are a good person. You may have done a lot of good deeds, and maybe society would describe you as a good person. However, the Word of God says that all have sinned. Not Hitler, not Stalin, not your next-door neighbor, but all have sinned. This, my friend, includes you. The question is not, are you a good person? The question is, are you guilty as charged? Have you sinned? According to these verses, the answer is yes. The fact that these verses explicitly state that all have sinned, the logical conclusion would be that all are therefore sinners. If all have sinned, all must be sinners. There could be no perfect person on the face of this earth. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, For there is not a just man upon the earth that doeth good, and sinneth not. We are not sinners because we have all sinned. We have all sinned because we are sinners. If you are a sinner and have then sinned, you have broken God's perfect law, and are therefore guilty as charged. If God were to ask you, Why should I let you into my heaven? What would your response be? Could you say before a holy God, I am a good person? Whether or not you are a good person is none effect before a holy, perfect God. Have you broken God's law? If you are guilty as charged, there must be a penalty. 
No amount of good works can save you from the penalty of committing a crime before a court of law, and no amount of good works that you have done can save you from the penalty of breaking God's law. If there is a penalty for breaking God's law of perfection, what is it? Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. Not the wages of murder is death, not the wages of lying is death, not the wages of adultery, gambling, fraud, or deceit is death, not even the wages of sins is death, but the wages of sin is death. If you have committed so much as one sin, and everyone has, then you are a sinner, therefore your penalty is death. The word for death in the Greek is thanatos, and has the idea of separation. The wages of sin is separation from God eternally in hell. Because God's law demands perfection, and you have broken his perfect law, your penalty is death and separation from God eternally. However, there is hope, as the verse continues, For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What is this gift of God, and how can you get it? Well, of course you know a gift is something you cannot earn. It is offered to you freely, without merit. If you were able to work for and earn it, it would no longer be a gift. Let us go back to our hypothetical court case. You hang your head in sorrow, as the judge has just placed upon your head your inevitable sentence. Your attorney sheepishly grins that his performance did not yield a desirable outcome. The plaintiff smiles in approval that justice has prevailed. As you prepare to enter death row, a man in attendance interrupts and steps up to the platform and shouts before the court, Your Honor, may I intervene? I will not suggest to your honor that the defendant not pay the penalty of his crime. Your honor's sentence is just and righteous, and the crime by the defendant must be punished. However, may I suggest not that your honor violate the law and let a guilty man go free without punishment, but allow me to bear his sentence. If I bear the penalty of this man's crime, justice shall prevail, and the crime shall be absolved. I am perfectly willing to take this man's place, if it would allow him to go free. You may check my record. I have committed no crime. I am not paying for a crime which I have committed, but for the crime that this man has committed. If your honor would accept my offer, and carry out justice for this crime, and let the defendant go free, I offer my life as a gift for the defendant, because I love him. After the shock of hearing this startling offer, you are shocked further to hear the honorable judge's response. I would like to draw the defendant's attention to a minor detail in this man's intervention. This man is my own son, whom I love dearly. I know that he has never committed any crimes and his record is perfect. I know that even though the defendant has never even met my son, my son still loves him. And being like my son, I also love the defendant. I love him as I do my own son. Given that my son is offering his life for the defendant, in like manner I cannot help but let this offer stand. Defendant, you have a choice to make. You can pay the penalty for your crime, or you can accept my son's offer. Either way, justice will be carried out. What is your choice? 
The likelihood of such an event happening in a court of law would not exceed the likelihood that an attorney would argue that good works could nullify the penalty for a crime. The defendant is guilty as charged. Could he earn this offer for his life? No. There is absolutely no possible way that one guilty of this crime could earn a substitute. This offer could only be a gift, a gift of immeasurable value. We have established that all have sinned, including you, and the penalty of sin is death. Yet Jesus Christ offers the gift of eternal life. What is this gift of eternal life? Romans 5, 8 says, For God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Yes, Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, came to earth, died on a cross at Calvary, and paid your penalty of death. Jesus Christ was perfect and did not deserve to die, yet he did, to pay the penalty for the sin of all mankind. Jesus did not deserve to die, and you do not deserve his offer. This is why it is a gift. You cannot earn it. You can only receive it. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Titus 3, 5 says, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. The question then is, how do you receive this gift of eternal life? Romans 10.9 begins, That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto them that call upon him. Jesus Christ paid the penalty of all the sins of the world by dying on a cross. And he made this offer possible by his resurrection from the dead three days later, conquering sin and death. He finished everything. There is nothing you can do to be saved. You are totally incapable of paying the penalty of your sin on your own and obtaining eternal life. You can only accept that which you cannot earn, God's free gift of salvation. You receive this gift by believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came to earth, lived a perfect life, died on the cross of Calvary, and rose three days later paying for your sin. Absolutely anyone can be saved, and it is so simple. Just believe. If you need help, you can pray a simple prayer to Jesus. There are no magic words. Just say what is in your heart. In fact, you can just pray along with me and mean it. Just say, Dear Jesus, I now realize that I am a sinner and that I am guilty as charged. I have broken your perfect law and I deserve death, eternal separation in hell. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin and rose from the dead. I humbly accept your free gift of salvation. Thank you for saving me, Lord Jesus. If you prayed along with me and meant it in your heart and you believed what you said, you are now saved forever from the penalty of your sin. You are now a child of God. You will never have to worry about the penalty again. It is paid in full.
You may be thinking, what happens if I sin now? Do I lose my salvation? Do I face the penalty again? According to God's word, you are saved forever. It would not be eternal life if you could lose it. 1 John 5.11 begins, And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. Because you are now God's child, you can rest assured that you will never lose your salvation. If you ask anything according to his will, he will hear you. Of course, salvation is not a license to sin. It is a license to righteousness. You can live freely to obey God, knowing that you are no longer guilty as charged. Although you may sin more during your life, you will not have to face eternal punishment for it. As a child of God, you will be chastened as a father chastens his son for wrongdoing, but you will not have to worry about going to hell. 1 John 2.1 says, My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We may sin, and we will be chastened for it, but we can obtain God's forgiveness if we ask. We can maintain a healthy relationship with God if we consistently spend time in his word and learn what he wants us to do. If we stumble and sin, we can get it taken care of by confessing to God and restoring fellowship. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, may you continue to grow in grace and knowledge in Jesus Christ. Thank you for waking up with Truth Espresso. Good morning, and God bless your day. Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso. 